satraps, which is just another word for governors. So, so he's, he's divided the land that he's over, and there's 120 states or sections that have governors over them. But over those 120 are three, three uh, superior uh, positions of authority, these three officials who are over the 120. And Daniel is one of those three, which says a lot about Daniel in and of itself. And we're told that these three are set up. Did you notice there in, at the end of verse 2 that these three were appointed to so that the king might suffer no loss? And so you've got a lot of politicians, 120 of them, and, and the king says, actually, I'm going I'm to suffer a lot of loss if there's no oversight to these. Right? Some things don't change. Right? Here's corrupt politicians. And so the king says, okay, no, no, no. We have to have three upright officials over them so that the king and its kingdom might not suffer loss. And so these three officials, one of which is Daniel, but it's more than that. Daniel's not only one of those three, but we're told that Darius wants to appoint Daniel the top of even those three and put him over the whole kingdom. And so Daniel, this is clearly the Lord's favor. Daniel is clearly favored by God, and he rises. His character reveals itself, and this king knows this is a man whom I can trust. And so he's going to put him over the whole kingdom, which doesn't go well, because Daniel, if you remember, he's in exile. He's a foreigner. And so, so you imagine that there's some people saying, no, 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 no. This, this, this Judah exile, how can he rule over us? He's not even like us. We've we got to stop him. We deserve that position of power and authority. So they begin to, to plan and scheme. Something must be done about Daniel. And so verses 4 and 5, they, they, they sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But, and it, this is amazing, isn't it? They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and there's no fault in him. This is Daniel. What a testimony. This is what it means to be above reproach. There's nothing in Daniel's life that these men can use against him. And you have to imagine, they had a lot of resources at their disposal. But they can find no error or fault. And so they realized the only way that we're going to be able to get rid of Daniel, they realized that only that, that this Daniel is so committed to his God, he's so faithful to his, his one Lord, if we can somehow devise a plan that would make it illegal for him to be faithful to his God, that's how we're going to get him. So, so we got to come up with a law that will make the worship of his God illegal. Then we'll be able to get rid of him. I, I thought it's like the diehard sports fan or, or the television show addict. So maybe you're having a party. You're like, I don't want that person to come. It's like, well, I know. They love the Washington football team. I'll just schedule it for Sunday at 1 o'clock. I know they're so committed to that Washington football team, they're not going to come to my party. Or maybe the TV addict. And it's like, oh, the new episode is airing Friday night, so we'll just have our party then. They are so committed to that, they won't come here. So it's similar in that this group knows the commitment of Daniel to his God is going to far outweigh anything else. And so all they have to do is schedule something. They know that he will not abide by a rule that requires him to abandon the worship of, the gods, of his gods. That's what they do. They devise a plan that no one can make any petition to any god or man for 30 days except to King Darius. Now, basically this means, I don't think Darius is saying, I'm, I'm the only god. I think, I think this culture, it is, it is, there are lots of gods. I think what, what Darius is doing, what this injunction is saying, is that for 30 days, the king is going to be the one mediator between all the gods of this land. So, so you got to come to me. I'm the one person that you got to go through. If you want to talk to the gods, you can't do it. You come through me, your king. I think that's, that's his point. So for 30 days, I think that the, the law is that no one can pray directly to the gods, but instead must go through Darius. So if you think Darius is a, a new ruler, I mean, there would clearly be benefit to him for this new law. 
I mean, what a way to unify the kingdom. Like, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the go-between. I'm your, your gateway to all the gods. And so Darius agrees to this plan. Now, Darius, he knows Daniel. He knows Daniel is committed to praying to the Lord. Well, no, well, they know. So the schemers know that Daniel will, will, will disobey this law. They present it to the king, but notice how they present it to the king. They say, all of the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, all the counselors, they've all agreed. Right? So they're deceitful in their, in their approach to the king. So Darius is assuming Daniel's in agreement with this because that's what they say, hey, we're all in agreement. And so he agrees to put this law into action. So he signs it and puts it into action for 30 days. And it's, it's a, a royal decree that cannot be changed. They, they make sure and make it an unalterable law. And so that there's the law, and the penalty is that the, the offender must be thrown to a den of lions. So that's the plan. They have the plan set. The king stamps it. It's a royal decree, and it cannot be changed, which leads to the second point there in verses 10 through 18, the king who cannot save. And so it's fascinating, as the plan is set and the king signs it and, and issues this decree, we quickly see in these verses that this king, though he's the most powerful man in the world, he cannot save Daniel. Because he tries. And we're going to see his failed attempt to save Daniel. But before we look at his failed attempt, just notice Daniel's resolve. Notice Daniel's commitment to the Lord. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. So he knows the law. He knows the penalty. He's aware of what's just happened. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Did you notice that? Daniel's made aware of the law that's been set in place. He knows the law. He knows the consequence. And his response is to go pray. And he goes to pray, it says, as he had done previously. So Daniel doesn't simply resort to prayer when things get tough. He doesn't resort to prayer when things get tough. Rather, when things get tough, Daniel keeps doing what he's been doing. Did you notice that? It's not a new routine for Daniel. This is Daniel doing the very thing that he's been doing. This is Daniel doing exactly what his, his opponents knew that he had been doing and he would continue to do. He goes to his room, he hits his knees three times a day and prays towards Jerusalem. And so Daniel keeps doing what he's been doing. His patterns, his habits had been set. And so in the time of crisis, he does what he's always done. And so as he does that, you can imagine the conspirators, they're, they're, they're outside the window just waiting. They know what he's going to do. And when they see Daniel continue this practice, when they see Daniel doing exactly the thing they assumed and knew he would do, they go back to King Darius and they report the violation to him. Before they say, hey, Daniel's doing it, they make sure the king acknowledges that the law is in place. They make sure that Darius confirms this is the law, it can't be changed. They get the king to, to, a, to a, acknowledge that and they say, oh yeah, that, that law that we just, just had you affirm, well... Your boy Daniel is the one who's the offender. And so I think Darius knows immediately that he's been trapped. I think he knows that they've schemed to do this. And so when, when, when Darius is made aware of that, verse 14, we see the relationship and the, the respect he has for Daniel. The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till sun went down to rescue him. He's, he's, he's pursuing all options. He's called his, his counsel. He's saying, what can we do? How can we get him off the hook? And there's nothing he can do. He, there's no way for him to save Daniel. He can't deliver him. The king can't save. This king, with all power and all his authority, he couldn't save Daniel. He couldn't do it. The law had been declared, and there's no way for this king to deliver Daniel. 
This earthly king has limited power. Maybe this ought to serve as a, as a, a warning for us or maybe a rude awakening for us. Maybe, maybe for those of us who may be tempted to place our hope in kings or princes or presidents or governors, let us learn the lesson here. At the end of the day, the king can't save. The president can't save. Regardless of power or position or influence, at the end of the day, every God-appointed political leader is limited in his or her ability to save. You just need to know that and, and live accordingly. I mean, Daniel had been faithful. He'd been faithful. And the most powerful man in the kingdom liked Daniel, and yet... Here Daniel was facing a death sentence, a, a, a trip into the den of the lions. And so, realizing he couldn't save Daniel, Darius calls for Daniel and casts him into the den of lions. He follows through with what he has to do, and then he goes back to his palace, and we're told he fasted all night, and he couldn't sleep a wink. I mean, clearly Darius cared about Daniel. And Darius, he, he, he had to... To, to come to terms with the fact that he could not save Daniel. But what's fascinating is that Darius does seem to have a glimmer of hope. Did you notice what he said as he left Daniel at the end of verse 16? When, when he leaves Daniel, what does he say? What, are his, what, what, what he thinks are his parting words? May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. So Darius knows, I can't, I've done all I can, Daniel. Your only hope is the God that you serve. So may he do it. So, so there's a glimmer of hope, it seems, but Darius is sleepless, he's anxious, he's distressed because Daniel is going to spend the night in the lion's den. And so the plan is set. The, king attempts, the king's attempts to save Daniel have failed. He can't do it, and Daniel is left in the hands of his God. And that leads to the final section of verses there, verses 19 through 28. But before we look at those, before we look at the God who is able to deliver, I just want to make a few points of application from this section, from the second point. And the two points of application are simply this. The first one is the, the, the miracle, the great miracle of grace. Because I think in, this, in these verses, not the following verses, we see a great miracle of grace. In fact, two separate commentators brought up this point, and I think they're exactly right. We often come to Daniel chapter 6, and we know what happens in the next section of verses. We know what happens at the end of Daniel's story. And we rightly recognize the, the supernatural intervention of the Lord to deliver Daniel. Right, the miracle of Daniel being spared from the lions. But listen to what one of the commentators says about the great miracle. It's not at the end of chapter 6. He says, quote, The great miracle of grace in Daniel 6 is that Daniel, the man of prayer, is able to go on praying. He continues, When we watch Daniel being lowered into the lion's den, we hold our breath in fear and anticipation. Yet, by that point, the danger has already been overcome and the great fight has already been fought. It is indeed a wondrous miracle that God preserves one of his children in the lion's den, but it is no less a miracle that God's gracious hand saved Daniel when all of Babylon, goaded on by Satan, attempted to pry apart those two aged hands tightly clasped in prayer. And so the miracle is that, that Daniel, when faced, when faced with his choice, am I going to keep worshiping, abiding by the, 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 the first and second commandment? Or am I going to ease my way out of this one and just keep the, the I'm going to close my windows and I'm, I'm going to just pray in private just for 30 days. I can just, it can, it's okay. No, no, notice. I'm still right with God. Right? The way out or the way of worship. And Daniel says, there's no, bad, there's no choice here. I'm going to worship the Lord. That is the, the miracle that Daniel says, I don't care what happens to me. 
I'm going to worship the Lord like my three friends did in chapter 3. So that by the time Daniel gets in the lion's den, the danger has already been overcome. He had decided to continue his worship of the Lord in the face of severe opposition. So in terms of application, the great miracle of grace is God's sustaining power for his people in the midst of difficulty. If you have God, listen to me, if you have God, nothing is too hard or too dangerous or too scary. If you have God, nothing is too hard or too dangerous or too scary. If you don't have God, everything has the potential for being too hard, too dangerous, and too scary. Do you hear that? If you're a believer, you belong to a God who is with you, and you belong to a God who doesn't and won't ever abandon you. And what's more, you have a relationship with him. You have access to him through prayer, and thus you have hope no matter what happens. No matter what stand you have to take, you have hope. And that hope is not that you'll be delivered from trials, because sometimes God's people aren't delivered from trials, we're delivered through trials. And so Daniel doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know, I'm not going to get touched by the lions. He knows, I'm going to worship God, and he's going to do what he's going to do. Either he's going to save me from the lions, or he's he's going to take me home through the death, through the teeth of the lions. So his hope, your hope, is not avoiding suffering. Your hope is that the Lord is with you. You have a relationship with the God who saves, and you have access to him, and with him nothing is too difficult. And so we learn that lesson from Daniel in his upper room. But the the second point of application, just from the second section, is we see the faithful prayer in exile. So we see faithful prayer in exile. So we don't know exactly what Daniel prayed when he went back to his room. We don't know what he prayed we do know a few things. We know he gave thanks. It records that he, he gave thanks to his God. And we also know that his habits, which were formed before the crisis, continued through the time of crisis. And so the point of application here is simply to recognize that the faithful prayer, prayer prays faithful prayers, always looking forward to future deliverance. So he could pray. He was a faithful prayer because he knew God was going to deliver. Now, when we get to Daniel chapter 9, it's fascinating. We'll, we'll see more of this then. But Daniel's prayer for deliverance in Daniel chapter 9 was based on God's promises to the Israelites. So he's, he's saying, hey, I know that you promised to Jeremiah we're going to just be in exile for 70 years. It's coming to an end. So, so remember your covenant. Remember your promises. Bring us home. That's Daniel in chapter 9 who's praying in the first year of Darius. Right? It's fascinating. We'll get to that in chapter 9. But he's, he's praying with hope knowing that God had made a promise. And so the reason Daniel could give thanks to the Lord facing his potential death wasn't because he knew he'd be spared from the lions, but because he knew that the Lord was going to end the exile of the Israelites soon. And so I think Daniel's saying, hey, if I die in the lion's den, just remember your promises. Bring your people back home to Israel like you've said. And so Daniel, in this sense, stands forth as an example for the exiled people of God, as an example for those of God's people who long to be home. Right? We're all exiles, Peter would say. We're all exiles. We're, we're all longing to be home. And we can learn from Daniel here. Yeah, as we long to be with the Lord, as we long to be with God's people, under God's perfect rule, in God's place, that's the hope of God's people. We're looking forward to that day. It's not here yet, but we're looking forward to that. And just like Daniel, we know it's going to be realized because God's promised that it's going to be realized. And so... Hope ought to animate our prayers. 
We are exiles. We will always be exiles, but we pray in hope because God's going to fulfill his promises to us. We're still exiles. We're going to be exiles in this world. This world is not our home. And so we pray as exiles with a future hope. We, we pray as exiles. And when we cease to pray as exiles, when we cease to long for the city of the living God that we're, that we're pilgrimaging to, that is when trial and crisis and opposition undoes us. This is too much. I can't handle this. Look at what's going on around me. Look at this crisis. Look at this health scare. I can't handle it. When, when all we think about is here and now, when we lose the reality that we are exiles going to a city where we'll be with God, we can, we can overcome anything here and now. We can have hope because that's going to happen no matter what. We are exiles. Brother, sister, this is not our home. We have to live like that. We hold this world loosely. When we pray as faithful exiles, when we recognize that God has made promises, and we have hope because the God who made promises will shepherd and sustain us until those promises come to pass, no matter how long it is in the future, we have hope, and so we pray as exiles. Well, finally, we come to the last section here, verses 19 through 28, the final section. We see the God who saves. So as we turn this final section, we find Darius at daybreak, first thing, running to the den where Daniel had spent the night. And Darius cries out, oh, Daniel, has your God done it? Has your God forsaken you? Are you going to answer me or has, has he sustained you? Has he delivered you? In other words, Daniel, has your God done what I couldn't do? And we can imagine the joy in the heart of King Darius when he hears the voice of Daniel, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they've not harmed me because I was found blameless before my God and also before you, O king. I've done no harm. And so the king is exceedingly glad. His heart is rejoicing. He says, okay, get him out. The trial's over. He's been delivered. So he, he removes Daniel, and almost in the same breath, he replaces Daniel with, with the men who had schemed and plotted against him. And so I think this is where we know King Darius was well aware of the plot and they thought they had trapped him and he knew their intentions. He knew that they intentionally tried to kill Daniel and Daniel had been delivered. And so King Darius says, they're going to pay for what they've done. And so he throws the men, not only the men, but the men and their families into the same pit that Daniel had just been delivered from. And so this is the punishment for these men. This is, this is the common practice of the Persian Empire. And so these men and all their family and all of their family members would be punished. And it's not easy to read that, is it? We have to acknowledge this isn't the Lord commanding this. This is a pagan ruler, Darius, a, a ruler of a, a pagan empire who, who seeks to pay, make the offenders pay. And this Darius commanding these men and their families you throw in the pit, they do not experience the deliverance that Daniel did. The death that these men schemed and plotted against Daniel was visited back upon them. And so the salvation is accompanied with judgment, isn't it? Well, King Darius, in proclamation very similar, after, after this has happened, in a proclamation very similar to those made by Nebuchadnezzar earlier in the book, 
He exalts and magnifies the God of Daniel. Look there in verse 26. I make a decree that in all my road dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And here's how he describes the God of Daniel. He's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so we see this pagan king honoring the God of Daniel because of the testimony, the faithful witness of Daniel. And so we find at the end of Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is prospering during the reign of Darius and Cyrus. And so we leave chapter 6 and, and we leave this section of the book of Daniel remembering this refrain that the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the God of Israel is the God who saves and delivers. And that's how we're to end this section of the book of Daniel, that there is a God who saves. And this is the last point of application from this chapter. The God who saves. And so that application, if you're here and you're a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're united to Jesus by faith in him, you ought to be reminded this morning from Daniel chapter 6 that you serve the God who saves. Your God's hand is not too short to save or to deliver. And so, brother, sister, regardless of the challenging circumstances or crisis that you're facing, God is able to save. Daniel was facing certain death and God saved him. God saved him. He saved him situationally. He saved him circumstantially. So, so God saves situationally. He can save situationally or circumstantially. We shouldn't undervalue the situational or circumstantial salvation. Maybe you like the word deliverance or rescue. But we shouldn't undervalue that. God is still able to do this. And so, brother or sister, are you sick? Are you facing crisis? Are you facing an incredibly tough life decision? Are you in a, a really difficult situation or relationship? Is your back up against the wall? Are you facing something you can't handle? Pray for God to intervene because, friend, God is able to deliver. He's able to save. And so cry out to him. You serve a God who's able to deliver circumstantially, situationally. He spared Daniel. He can save you too. But we also must recognize that in, in addition to situational or circumstantial salvation, and really vastly superior to any situational or circumstantial deliverance is the eternal salvation that God has accomplished. So he's able to save in this way, circumstantially. He's able to do that. But he might not do that. He might not. The end of, the end of Hebrews chapter 11 is filled with people who he did not save that way. He did save Daniel that way. And he may. He may save you that way. But whether he does or not, he has accomplished an eternal salvation for you if you're his child. God is able and sometimes does work out situational deliverance. Sometimes he does deliver from the fiery furnace or the lion's den, but not always. However, the eternal salvation that God has accomplished is always certain. Always certain. And this is the hope of God's people. Because here's the deal, and this is hard to hear, because he may not heal you. He may not, but that doesn't mean he doesn't care for you. It doesn't mean he's abandoned you. Because whether he brings temporary relief or not, whether he delivers situationally or not, whether he intervenes in your particular situation or not, he will never abandon his people completely. 
He will save eternally in the end. God is able to save. If you're here and you have been saved by the work of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, you are safe in the hands of your Father for now and eternity. And nothing shall separate you from the love of God that's been shown to you in Christ Jesus. No one is able to pluck you from his hand. It's a strong hand. It's a long arm. It is a sure salvation. And so you should be encouraged. If you're here and you don't, you don't know that eternal salvation, if you don't know that, that you are safe and will be with the Lord and his people forever, if you don't have confidence that there's salvation that has been accomplished on your behalf by Jesus Christ, you must know that. You must know that. You must walk out of these doors this morning knowing that there is a God who saves. And he does so through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must know this morning that eternal salvation is offered to all who would believe. And you must believe. If you don't believe in Jesus, you must do it. God calls you to repent and believe in his Son. And by so doing, you will have eternal salvation. Don't leave here without having that. It's, been, it's offered to you today. God through me says, repent and believe in my son and have eternal life. Be saved forever. And so you should know that this morning. And you should also know that if you come to salvation through Jesus Christ, a life of faith in Jesus a life as a Christian doesn't guarantee life free from suffering or sorrow or difficulty or disappointment. That's not what you're signing up for. Christians are not immune to those things in life. I mean, I won't ask for an amen, but as Christians, if you're a believer, you've been so for any amount of time. You've suffered. You've experienced sorrow, difficulty, disappointment. That, that's the world we live in. You're not free from it. You don't get a free pass if you follow Jesus. You don't get your best life now. But life as a Christian in this world is a life that is governed by hope because God is the God who saves. And we will make it in the end, no matter what happens here and now. And so we have hope. And our lives as his people are animated by hope, believing what he has promised. And so let me pray, and then we're going to sing in response. But, but pray with me as we close.